Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode number eight of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Today we're going to talk about wilderness areas. And more specifically, we're going to take you to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, which is the most threatened wilderness in the U.S. So before we get into that, let's let's do a little background on what we mean by wilderness with a capital W. The Wilderness Act was signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson in 1964, and it created the National Wilderness Preservation System, and it also put a legal definition around the term wilderness. One of the primary authors of this act, Howard Zahnizer, uh, defined it this way, a wilderness in contrast with those areas where man and his own works dominate the landscape is hereby recognized as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. It's really a uh, protective overlay that's applied to certain areas in our country, certain areas of public lands. They could be national forests, parks, wildlife refuges, any number of different places. Um, One of the criticisms that has been made uh, in the past about it is the reference to quote man himself as is a visitor who does not remain but i think that's the critical element of it and why it is really unique so if you think about it there are very few places where there are no buildings no roads no machines And the only really semi-permanent structures I can think of would be these throne toilets, basically a seat to sit on and uh, do your business, and the fire grates to control where where you do fires. And that's specific to the Boundary Waters where we're at today. And... I think that's a pretty special thing and something that is that is uh, needed in this world. There are 765 of these wilderness areas in the U.S. They comprise just over 109 million acres total, which is under 5% of the U.S. land mass. And the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness is just over 1 million acres itself. So the question is, why are these areas important? Well, if you hunt or fish... I would say there's no better place to do those activities. It's still and quiet. And it in essence allows you to travel in time to a to a place in a in a time where we didn't have a lot of these modern mechanizations. And uh again, that's that's a pretty special thing. And when you talk about doing hunting and fishing and foraging activities in a place like that, that's pretty special. You know, I was um the fall before last, I was antelope hunting out in Wyoming. Had a wonderful time, great people, great place, but there were a lot of roads, a lot of fence lines marking up and 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 really chopping up this creating this patchwork of public and private lands, and oil derricks all over. 
and um, had a great time, really beautiful place in its own right. But if I was given my choice on where I'm going to hunt and fish, I'll take a wilderness area where those those um, aspects of man and development are, are not seen readily while you're doing the activities. The Boundary Waters is, is, is one of those places. There's over a thousand lakes in this, in this wilderness area and 1,500 miles of canoe routes. The water in this area is so clean that many people will actually just dip their water bottle over the side of the canoe to take a drink. I would personally recommend using a filter for potential of giardia or any other uh, potential risks to uh, to your digestive system. But that just gives you an example of how clean this water is in this wilderness area. So if you want to lose yourself and really catch some great fish and maybe shoot a grouse, this is the place to to do it. So why is the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness threatened, as I mentioned at the open here? Well, currently there is a Chilean mining conglomerate that's trying to site a copper mine within the watershed of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. And you may say, so what's the problem with that? We've got mines in, in areas, uh, wild areas all over the country. Well, if you look at the facts, it becomes a little concerning. Research shows that 100% of this type of copper mine experiences pipeline spills and accidental releases. So what are they spilling or releasing? Oftentimes, it's one of the main byproducts of copper mining, and that is sulfuric acid. So if a mine were placed within the watershed of the Boundary Waters Canary Wilderness, and when, not if... It had a spill. That acidic slurry of byproduct would go right into these waters, these pristine waters. So what's happening today right now? Well, just a uh, couple weeks ago, a letter came across my desk that I saw, which was from the chair of the House Natural Resources Committee, the chair of the House Interior Environment Appropriations Committee, and the chair of the subcommittee on energy and mineral resources. It's a lot of a lot of terms there. But they sent a letter to the Secretary of Agriculture and the Secretary of the Interior. And in it, they they basically called out a lot of activities that they that they believe are rather dubious. The current administration and its push to greenlight this Chilean company's mine in the Boundary Waters has ignored so much data and, and fact around the risks that this mine would pose to this area. Some of those are, there's a $900 million recreation industry in that region of the state, which, which obviously is driven in a large part by the pristine beauty of this wilderness area. It is the most visited wilderness in all of America. And polls show that more than 70% of people in Minnesota support protection of this wilderness from mining inside of its watershed. So some of the things that they they have done, not only ignoring those facts, is the administration has recently canceled the environmental review that was underway to determine the risks that mining would pose to the wilderness and the waterways. 
And now they've decided to renew the leases that are held by this, this Chilean company and its predecessors for the last 50 years, but they never exercised the use of it. And it had expired, but now they decided to renew them. So the bottom line is, if you like to hunt and fish, or if you're aspiring to hunt and fish and forage, a wilderness area like the Boundary Waters Canoe Area is about as good as it gets anywhere in the world. And if that's important to you, I'd recommend letting your elected officials know what you think about these moves to put our wild heritage at risk for the benefit of a foreign conglomerate who will really take, then move on, leaving us to clean up the mess. So, let's get to today's episode on a happier note. We were traveling in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, this beautiful place today. We're going to take you there. And it's a throwback. This recording is actually a throwback to a trip I took in the fall with a great group of guys. We went, uh, went up to go grouse hunting and to, uh, to do some fishing. I was joined by Miles Nolte, who at the time was the editor of Gray's Sporting Journal. He's now with Meat Eater. Lucas Leaf, who is the executive director with Sportsman for the Boundary Waters. Rob Dreeslein, who is the president of Outdoor News, and John Hennessy, or Wild Game Jack, as he is known, who is an outdoor writer and wild game cook. Again, we hiked through these really amazing areas and uh, paddled across some, uh, some wonderful waters. The weather was great, uh, beautiful fall evenings. And you're going to notice uh, there's water flowing. You can hear it a lot. Uh, and that is because there were some heavy rains right before we got up there. And we had rivers flowing everywhere, including right through the middle of our camp, right where we were sitting when we recorded this. So a lot of, uh, lot of wind and water, but uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation and uh, taking you to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness today. Okay, we are here in the Boundary Waters of uh, northern Minnesota, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, and I uh, got a group of guys here. Why don't we go around? Miles, why don't you uh, introduce yourself? I am Miles Nolte. I'm the angling editor for Gray's Sporting Journal and uh, fly fishing guide based out of Bozeman, Montana. Uh, Lucas Leaf here, sporting outreach director for Sportsman for the Boundary Waters. Jack Hennessy, freelance outdoors journalist and wild game cook. Rob Dreeslein, managing editor, president of the Outdoor News Publications out of the Twin Cities, enjoying a trip in the Boundary Waters. Excellent. So we've been up here now um, second day in. Second day. Second day in the Boundary Waters. And we came up um, to do a little little fishing, a little hunting, and uh, that was the goal. And I want to, I guess, start by by talking about the context of why we're here, which is these are public lands, and public lands are a critically important part of hunting, and um, and this is one of those places, one of those special public lands places. So, Lucas, you know, you've got a 
uh, a lot of experience up here. You uh, work with Sportsmen for the Boundary Waters. Mm -hmm. Maybe share with us a little bit about the organization and, and why it's, you see it being important to hunting and fishing. Yeah, so uh, Sportsman for the Boundary Waters is, is currently working on uh, preventing proposed sulfide ore copper mining within the watershed up here of the Boundary Waters Canaria Wilderness and Voyagers National Park. Um, this is, you know, a wonderful, wonderful hunting and fishing area, um, world-class fishing opportunities, great grouse hunting and whitetail hunting as well. Um, so there's, re there's really nothing like it. The interconnected lakes, the species that you can fish, the experience that it is coming in here to do it. Um, uh, it just, it obviously for that, for that exact reason, needs to be protected. It needs to uh, be kept the way it is for future generations to experience it like we here today are being able to. And uh, the, yeah, that's, that's the main thing that we're working on and the main reason that that organization exists at the moment. I think it's one of those things that, that not a lot of people maybe think about initially, especially if they haven't hunted and fished before, they may not understand the whole public lands issue. But in, in my opinion, it's it's critical to the future of these activities and, and, and access for all, and it's uniquely North American, or really American. What uh, what do you guys, uh, what do the rest of you guys think? I think for folks like us, and certainly for myself, public lands is, is the backbone of my identity. It's not just the necessary for my livelihood, which, which they are, but the, the sense of self, my who I am and the things I love to do and the people I like to get out with. And Absolutely. the way that I see myself interacting with the world is dependent upon having lands that are wilderness, that aren't developed, that aren't full of roadways or other people that I can get out and recreate in. Yeah. And if I don't, if we lose those and they become privatized, Folks who don't have sufficient funds to buy a parcel of land and have it posted off as private don't get to do that. And and even even folks who do, you if you have own private land, you have however many acres happen to be yours, and that's all you get. When, as public landowners, yeah. which we all are, we are privileged to these huge backyards and these massive playgrounds that we get to enjoy, so long as we steward them appropriately mm -hmm. and keep them public. Yeah, I always think like with, you know, if you own your, your back 40, your back 80, it's like, yeah, you might have opportunities for whitetail, maybe grouse, maybe if you're lucky, waterfall, but not everything. And you need public lands if you want to have a diversity of, of hunting opportunities. And even if you do own that 40 or 80, they're usually bordered by someone else that's, that owns the other land around it. You know, there's no there's no way to expand. I mean, you know, yeah. we're out here right now, it's that's 1.1 million acres of public land we're sitting on in the Boundary Water, so... Yeah, absolutely. If you're willing to put a little work in, like we did, to get back here, uh, this morning we we hiked uh, above Rose Lake, looking down, uh, you know, at the Palisades, enjoying an absolute world-class opportunity. It's not just that we have access to land; it's that we have access to this quality of land that uh, that we're looking at right now as we sit and chat. So we came in yesterday, came up Gunflint Trail, put in at East Bearskin. Portaged into Duncan, and then portaged again into Rose, and we're on the Canadian border. Mm -hmm. For those of you listening, to get perspective of where we're at, West Bearskin. Oh yes, West Bearskin. Thank you for the correction. Um, and we fished yesterday. How'd we do, Jack? Oh.
Not well at all. <laughs> <laughs> Bought that world class uh, fishery, yeah. Oh, we caught a couple smallmouth. These small guys mouth. caught a couple exactly. of smallmouth. Yeah. Exactly. We're, we're, we're feeling confident about the about the night bite here for walleye. The night bite's going to be good. Absolutely. We'll get some walleyes tonight. But today we went up on the border route trail uh, right here on, 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 the, uh, on the Canadian border, and uh, we got a couple grouse. Price of grouse. Yeah, absolutely. So, two grouse for dinner, and then we'll do a little a little walleye <clears> after <throat> that, uh, out on the water, and hopefully have uh, eggs and walleye in the morning. A little boundary water surf and turf. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Seen some other wildlife. Saw some yeah. swans yesterday. Saw some loons. Saw a bunch of moose sign absolutely. this morning. Um, any other cool critters, you guys? Whatever, whatever it was that robbed the camp, we don't know what that yeah, was. Yeah, there's ducks. <laughs> we did see some ducks, yes. We've been seeing ducks. We, we have been seeing ducks. If it wasn't for the wind right now, someone would be back in that channel, possibly shooting more dinner. We'd be trying to jump shoot ducks other than the wind. <laughs> that is going to be the next trip, is duck hunting up here. As, as, as Lucas and I talked about, neither of us know anybody who's ever taken ducks in boundary waters. Rob, do you know anybody who's... No, I don't. Uh, I've, I've hunted them just, just west of here uh, on... on on other public land, but not in the boundary one. Yeah, I, I really want to do that. It would uh, be a lot of fun. So at Modern Carnivore, you know, the focus of Modern Carnivore is to bring adults into hunting and fishing who've never been doing this before. Um, and so one of the things we like to do is, is have people talk about how they got into hunting, whether it was as a child or, or as an adult, um, and, and why, as you said, Miles, you know, why, why is a part of your identity? Help people understand what's what it means to you. So um, why don't we start with you? I actually can't remember a time when I wasn't fishing. Fishing has just been a part of my my world and my life since uh, I was maybe four years old. It was, all, it was my favorite thing to do. Uh, before, I, before I discovered girls, all I cared about was fishing and baseball. <laughs> I eventually came back to fishing. And I actually didn't grow up hunting. I grew up in a family that didn't hunt and it was through a really good fishing buddy of mine in Montana that I got into into hunting when I was in so my twenties. Was this some somebody your age? Yep. So a peer. Yep. It was a peer. So in your twenties, yeah. So no, yeah. I mean, nobody else when you were a kid. No, nobody in my childhood. I'd, so where did you grow up? I grew up in Hawaii. Okay. I grew up on Oahu in Hawaii, so a pretty, uh, pretty developed, pretty urban space. I guess you could say we did some hunting if you want to call spearfishing hunting. That was my version of hunting growing yep. up, but. There is some pig hunting on Oahu where I grew up, but but not a lot of it, and it's only archery. And I didn't none of the none of the people within my immediate circle were into it. So I was. So when was it, when was your first hunt of of game my, on the, land? I when I was guiding in Alaska in my early twenties, we would go out duck hunting after work some nights, and I had a so friend, you were a fishing guide. I was a fishing, fishing guide. guide. Yep. yep, I was yep. a fishing guide up there, and and one of my other fishing guide colleagues was a big duck hunter and a duck hunting guide. And starting September 1st up there, duck hunting is open. So we'd finish our day of, uh, of fishing. We'd clean out the boats, get everything done, turn back around, and go out. And it was pretty pretty sophisticated duck hunting. Lawn chairs, <laughs> sitting in the weeds. Nice. I think we had three decoys. <laughs> now, now are you getting are you getting sea ducks up there? Are you getting like eiders or what? What do you what do you? Not where we were. Not, there, not where we were. Yeah. It was it was mallards and teal primarily. Okay. okay. Where we were at. Okay. Uh, mostly mallards. And, and they were pretty, a lot of them pretty young being like September 1st. But yeah. uh, that was how I got into it. And then back in Montana, I had a really close friend who was a fishing buddy who got me into big game hunting. And it was primarily for me about 
uh, wanted to, to harvest my own meat. That was how I started getting interested in it and getting involved in it, going on elk hunts with him, helping him pack out elk in, in exchange to get to take some home and fell in love with it. Been hunting ever since. What's your favorite wild game to eat? That would be antelope. I love antelope. And I know you're going on an antelope hunt your first yeah. pretty soon. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll be happy to share some recipes and some techniques with you, man, because that is good meat. Excellent. I, I look forward to it. I look forward to it. How about you, Jack? When did uh, when did you get into hunting and fishing? Uh, I was 26 when I started hunting. Uh, I grew up fishing, too, but on a limited basis. My, I went with my dad. He often worked six days a week. So we get out when we could and go some bass, bass fishing and then... Um, at 26, I applied to Eastern Washington Graduate School, and I got in, and I'd been reading all stories about hunting and great outdoors, so it made sense when I went to a location that had that as a benefit that I should take advantage of it, and so I got my hunter safety in the first year I was there, and, and so I graduated, and for four more years I lived there, and just taking advantage of something new every year, whether it be duck hunting, steelhead fishing, uh, towards the end there I was bow hunting for whitetails and muleys. And uh, so just trying to, it's a little late to the game, but trying to tackle something new at every opportunity. What do you, what do you love most about it? Like what's, what's, the, what's the thing that really draws you and keeps you doing it? Um, just being able to detach from all other concerns and return to your most basic self, your, your primitive version of your persona, and just be part of your natural world and and come away with uh, a new perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How about you, Rob? Yeah, I, I'm very lucky to grow up hunting and fishing uh, down on Mississippi River country, uh, down in that lacrosse and Winona area uh, with my dad and with, with a lot of buddies. My dad was a big uh, deer hunter, and so I did a lot of bow hunting with him. I got into duck hunting with, with friends, and um, to this day, I, I think if, you, if I had to pick one thing I could be doing out, out of doors, it would be a good day of duck hunting. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's about as, about as good as it gets out of doors, I think. And uh, Yeah, I tried to expose my kids to it also. Um, I think it's important they know where their food comes from, you know, whether it's, whether it's a, a, a steak at the grocery store or whether it's, um, you know, it's some venison uh, bratwurst. You know, I think it's important they understand that something had to die for them to enjoy that meal, for them to live, and uh, that's something I've tried to tried to share with them absolutely last guy in the group when when did you start hunting and fishing i'm kind of in the the same boat that miles was i mean i you know was practically out of the womb i had a fishing pole in my hand that was that was what my family did you know we, we fished i was i didn't really come from a hunting family um so in my early 20s you know have you know met a couple people some friends and acquaintances that were hunting and invited me to you know, a couple different opportunities like grouse hunting, duck hunting, uh, doing the waterfowl stuff, and I bought my first gun and um, got out there and experienced it, and and also really got into it too while I was while I was a chef because you know I wanted to you know understand where meat was coming from, and I also wanted to provide for myself as well and to to eat sustainably and harvest for myself and family and friends and and introduce them to it through through cooking to get a better perspective for them on it as well. What have you found to be the best ways to get people introduced to wild game? Because, you know, a lot of times people are, are skittish about it or they, they <laughs> Uncle Charlie made shoe leather venison, you know, for them and they, they ate it. <laughs> I, I see I see that, that skittishness 
turning around to curiosity nowadays. Yeah. I think people really want to try it for themselves and you <clears throat> don't really have to force it on them anymore, you know? But uh, I, the easiest way is is preparing it similarly to something they've already had, you know, mm -hmm. be it a steak or some type of ground meat into a burger or a pasta or something so they can, oh, that's right, you know, okay, I get it. This mm -hmm. tastes like mm -hmm. almost everything else I make, I normally make, but maybe even a little bit better. Yeah. And then they get interested and maybe they get into hunting. Maybe they get into fishing. So if, if, if I can jump in, I think the wild turkey has been a real great gateway, species gateway drug for hunting. Uh, I think a lot of people who aren't maybe interested in shooting a deer or some, you know, some other pretty animal, but everybody loves eating turkey in this country. And, I, and I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of people. I, my dad converted an anti-hunter. I sort of got via turkey hunting. And he eventually became a deer hunter uh, because he, he liked, he respected how my dad was a hunter. And finally my dad said, you got to try this turkey thing. We all know how addicted turkey hunt, addictive turkey hunting can be. And, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So anyway, that's my two cents. Jack, I know you got similar perspectives, Lucas, on familiarity. You're packaging it up in the right way. I yeah, think well, you. I think, yeah. I vary. I guess it depends on the person. You know, are they going to take something on its purest level? So can you can you brine something and just and cook it up a bird for them that way and have them taste just what a roasted brine duck tastes like? Or do you have to do what Lucas says? Do you have to grind it into something? Do you have to turn it into fajitas? It varies from person to person. Um, right. With so. <clears throat> I, I, yeah, like I said, it's going to vary from person to person. I think if you really want to taste something for how it's meant to taste, it's just that salt and pepper at first. Mm -hmm. and it's just the taste of the meat. Uh, if you're talking duck, you're just going to cold cast iron, just simmer down and cook it in its own fat with salt and pepper on the outside. Maybe pheasant, you hang it for a few days, and then you just roast it. So rabbit, quarter it, sear it, braise it. So I'm talking about small games. That's primarily what I end up coming home with. So you bring you bring up cast iron. So we we did something interesting on this trip, which I haven't seen before. Which is we we packed in cast iron into the boundary waters, which is awesome because mm -hmm. it is a great cooking utensil. So you guys have you guys thought about tonight what what we're going to do with the grouse? So we got two grouse. I don't know if you, you guys have any thoughts on that with with the are we using the cast iron? I presume for yes. cooking. I, yeah. I think when we were walking earlier today, we were talking about doing spatchcock. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we got a bunch of other stuff to go with it, and we'll dig and figure out what that may be. But we got some wild mushrooms and yeah, potatoes and a few other things. You had some dehydrated santrelles and lobsters, did you say too? Or? Well, not not. Oh yeah, that's right. Good reminder. Yes, powdered. I have I have powdered dehydrated chanterelle and lobsters. And you foraged yeah. a little bit today. Uh, we foraged today. We didn't find. We found a bunch of lobster mushrooms, but yeah. they were all pretty much. Uh, past their prime. You got juniper berries though, right? We did get a bunch so, of juniper, yes. Yeah, yeah, so we'll awesome. be using that, I'm sure, in something here. Very good. Um, so here's here's something that I think a lot of, uh, again, I think public lands are an important underlying, you know, value of, of the hunting, fishing community that, that it's important for people to understand why that's important. Um, another one is just sort of the def definition of, you know, conservation and how I think hunters and fishermen or anglers, I should say, um, are conservationists, which is something that I think a lot of people find counterintuitive. They don't get it. They don't understand it. What do you mean? You're, you're killing that animal. How are you conserving it? I just want to throw it out to the floor, you guys, What uh, on the dirt floor here in the woods. Thoughts? This 
this refracts back to a conversation we were having yesterday um, in that one of the things that I have learned, I, I learned this primarily when I was being a fishing guide in Alaska and when I first started working up there, I was, I was pretty staunchly against the hunting of brown bears, coastal brown bears. I thought that, you know, they're, they're no good to eat. Nobody eats them. It's purely a trophy hunt. And I had a pretty, pretty sour taste in my mouth about it. And I saw what happens up there and how the, the folks who do choose to go up there and do those trophy hunts and take some big boars out of the, out of the population there, make an area that would probably be desirable as a space that could be developed for other means all of a sudden useful to remain as wilderness because each one of those bears brings in about ten thousand dollars for the state the state's much more willing or i should say the state is less willing to entertain the idea of various speculators coming in and looking for resources they might be able to extract from that space or ways they can develop that space when they know by maintaining it as an intact ecosystem and not essentially doing anything to it at all, they're going to get a nice significant revenue stream. And I think that connects to what you're saying because hunters and anglers are the ones who put their monies where their money where their mouth is when it comes to spending dollars on conserving space, mm-hmm. conserving public lands, making them financially viable. I think it's sad that we have to look at lands yeah. and in terms of capitalist ideals, but that's the world that we live in. If they can't make money that way, they're going to make money some other way. Yeah. And hunters and anglers care enough about the things that we do to spend money. And Miles, just to follow up, and that $10,000, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's right? ju- Oh, that's, that's just the tag. That's not, they also have to pay guides. You're talking about paying the lodge. You're talking about paying the pilot, the hotels on the way in. I mean, we can, we can trace that all the way back, but that's just the direct fees that go to the state. And a lot of people think, you know, yeah, you're killing the animals, but anybody that understands anything about conservation, it's about habitat. If we talk about pheasant hunting in South Dakota and you talk to any of the biologists there or residents there, like, you know, it's, it's the loss of CRP. That's causing the Demetian uh, Conservation Reserve Program. Yeah. Conservation yep. Reserve Program, and it's ca- that's what's <coughs> causing the population to decline in South Dakota. It's not because people are going there to hunt. It's the premier state to hunt pheasants. It's the farm bill and all those issues involved, and that's what hunters, when you're buying your licenses and you're talking about the tags, that's going into the state, and that money's going towards habitat. Mm-hmm. That, that those dollars are going into the ground to try to preserve habitat. Well, I think I think one one of the things I was surprised about when I heard a study sometime last year um, about there's there's a, a a lack of understanding about management of wildlife and that that there are game managers and that there the populations are actually managed very carefully. It's not just a free for all. Go grab a gun and go out and shoot some stuff. And and I think a lot of people need to understand that better. You know, wildlife is managed at the state level and 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 that everything about this this activity requires large tracts of unspoilt land that is true conservation. And, and like you said, it is the money. And maybe I don't know, Rob, you got other thoughts on you know whether it's Pittman Robertson dollars or it's, et cetera, other things that that really go towards it from a conservation standpoint that hunters and anglers pay directly for the lion's share, uh, a big part of it. Well, and we were, we were sharing with Miles about our uh, Outdoor Heritage Fund here in Minnesota uh, and how lucky we are to have that in this state. That wouldn't exist without the a, a decade-long effort from sportsmen to secure that 
you know, money that's coming from the state sales tax that's going for all kinds of great environmental projects. Uh, j just to kind of close the loop on one thing, you know, I think the sage grouse represents a great example <laughs> of, you know, there's there's elements within the administration talking about, well, maybe we, we can we can breed some sage grouse. We can, <laughs> we can stock them, and that'll solve the problem. And, and uh, you know, Lucas and I were both so at, the, well. we were at the TRCP summit. Mm -hmm. The groups pushing back on that are sportsman groups. Yes. They're saying, no, we need to fix it with, with habitat, right. not by stocking sage grouse. And you're talking about my backyard there right you go. now yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. when, when yeah. it comes to the sage grouse. And that has been uh, such an impressive effort. And I don't want to derail our conversation too much. No, but no, but the, the effort that went in, not just on the part of sportsmen, but such a, a rare alliance of yep. sportsmen and agricultural interests and even mining interests and energy development interests mm -hmm. who came together to say, we want to we find a solution that doesn't involve governmental interference in this. We want to make something work. And, and we came up with a plan. Good it, it took a lot of time and effort and a lot of tooth gnashing and, and hashing things out. But it's one of the rare situations I've seen in my lifetime where all these disparate groups actually worked together and agreed on a plan that's that's been effective. So that, that's a, a little bit of a sore stump yeah. for me oh, no, no. that you tripped over. As, but, it, sh as it should be. It's um, very disappointing what's coming out of the administration yeah. right now. It really is. It really is. And and as a, as a Montanan, I'm... I'm very disappointed in a fellow Montana of mine mm. who is really pushing for that. I'm, I'm sorry that our Secretary of the Interior is not lauding that as success instead of trying to undermine it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So some of the other things, I don't know if there's anything else on that anybody wanted to add in. You know, some of the other things I think about with, with people starting to, starting on some of the barriers, you know, whether it's firearms, whether it's the idea of killing a living thing, whether it's the complexity of the gear and and understanding the land and, and where to go, et cetera. What are you guys' thoughts on that in terms of what what are the what are in your mind, what are the things that, that are probably misunderstood in terms of the people make them into a bigger issue than they are, or something that you feel like, you know what, you've got a perspective on it, whether it's guns or other things that, that, that to the average person could allay concerns and get them get them open to the idea of hunting i think i don't i think all of those are just as significant as you lay them out to be yeah mm -hmm. i think all of those are incredibly complicated and difficult things to figure out i also think that's part of the attraction of hunting is that Absolutely. it isn't simple and that it does require years of investment that doesn't mean you can't have fun or enjoy yourself on your first day in the field but it means that when you have that first day in the field, you get a sense that this is something you can spend your entire life doing and still not have it all figured out. Totally. And to me, that's a benefit. Yeah, yeah. That's why I want Absolutely. to keep going. Absolutely. Jack, you started hunting, you know, in your, in your 20s. What, what, what did you see as the, as the biggest barriers? That you um, <clears throat> knowing where to go to start off with. I was in Washington State. Washington made it easy. They're, um, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, they had a number you could call, and there was private landowners. At, at that point, this was before walk-in access was kind of a thing, but they had volunteered, yeah, we got too many turkeys on our land, and we want you to come hunt our turkeys. So that's what I did, and met up with some property owners there. But mentorship is also a big thing. But I think what Miles alluded to is that if you want to do something, you're going to find ways to do it. You're going to pick people's brains. Mm -hmm. So maybe you go out with one person the first time and they're, maybe they flake out on you. Or maybe they've got a busy work schedule and a family. But maybe you keep talking to other people, find out, you know, create these amicable relationships and go hunting with these people. Um, I was 
I'm lucky enough that I'm, I knew some people and I knew some friends of friends and met some other people out there that uh, was able to stay in contact with and build relationships with that led to other relationships. But it all comes down to if you really want to do something, you're going to do it. You're going to learn where to go. You're going to learn how to use your firearms. You're going to learn who knows more knowledge than you. You're going to get involved in conservation. It's, it's, it's a hierarchy of how much do you care. Did you have a mentor or did you have a peer who was like a good buddy who went, yeah. you went with a lot? I had or? a good buddy that grew up bird hunting that had a perspective and kind of had some stories to share. But it was it, I actually kind of jumped from hunting partner to hunting partner until I met a couple of really good buddies that I still obviously stay in contact with that out in eastern Washington. They were friends of friends of friends. And then we're, we get along great, and you know. So some guys like you call them at six in the morning. They're not coming out to the car. Like, no, I was up late last night partying. <laughs> and those are the guys that you first started hunting with. And then eventually you get to the, you get to the core group of who actually wants to get up. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. I think the other piece, though, is that I, th- I, I think when I first started hunting, I had this expectation that pretty quick, that at some point, I was gonna have it figured out. Mm-hmm. And, right. Right. And, right. Absolutely. And it's, it's like so many of the important lessons we get to learn, the important activities we engage with in our lives. The, the more you figure out, the more you realize you're never going to figure right. it out. Right. Exactly. And yeah, okay, I might have a couple spots that I feel are pretty well dialed, and a couple species, and a couple areas that I, I feel like I have a semi-decent right. idea of what's going on. But I come out here with you guys and walk in this country that I've never been in, that's thousands of miles from anywhere I've ever hunted, and I have absolutely no frame of reference. Some of the things that I know, some of the skills that I have developed, follow me here. But this is there's no way that you're gonna you're gonna get it all figured out, and that's what makes it fun. Right. You open up the crop on a grouse, and I don't even know what he's eating. (laughs) Why are you eating those leaves? What are those? (laughs) Just trying to figure it out. So what's a uh, what's an upcoming hunt or fishing trip you guys? uh, are planning on or you would like to take that uh, you're excited about? I've got a Missouri River Breaks hunt coming up next month that I'm absolutely ecstatic about. Awesome. Yep. It's going to be fun. I mean, I'm looking for, you know, upcoming whitetail here. I mean, it's bow season right now, but I don't have time for that at the moment. Too busy, so probably be doing rifle and then... I'll be uh, knee-deep getting ready for ice fishing, honestly, and planning some trips back up here for some lake trout. Anytime I can get out with a four-month-old yeah. <laughs> yeah, as a stay-at-home dad, <laughs> even if it's just 45 minutes north of the metro, that's good enough for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking, for, looking forward to, to deer hunting with my dad. My dad is uh, going to be 75 this winter, and he's still hunting hard, so I'm looking forward to spending another, another fall with him. I've gotten into the ice fishing thing the past few years. You know, the ice fishing technology equipment's come so far, it's so easy. It's, it's just, <laughs> compared to what it yeah, used to be. Compared yeah, to when we were kids, yeah, right? Absolutely. I don't know. I might, I might hit up Lucas tag along on this lake trail yeah, thing. Up here. Well, that sounds pretty cool. You can always come on Lake Mille Lacs, too. Dad and I drag our permanent out there every year. It's always fun. Yeah. Well, thank you, guys. This is uh, fun coming up here with you. Thank you, Lucas, for putting this together. And uh, yeah, You're all very welcome. Sportsman so for the yeah. Boundary Wanderers. Excuse me, Sportsman for the Boundarywaters.org, correct? Yes, sir. It's the organization. And uh, if you want to learn more about this place and uh, why it's an important thing to keep the way it is today. And uh, I think we should cook up those grouse. Let's do it. Yep. Let's eat. Yeah, we got to get a wildlife question.
Well, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with a great group of guys up in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Just a last reminder here, if you want to learn more about the issue, what's going on, go to sportsmanfortheboundarywaters.org. Again, that's sportsmanfortheboundarywaters.org. Get up on the issue and understand what's going on, and then uh, let your legislators know that uh, that you think this is a place that, that deserves protection so that we can have the opportunity to, to hunt and fish there in these pristine waters uh, for, for generations to come. Thanks for listening. Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com. 